0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Toddler Purgatory. I'm one of your hosts, Molly. What's up? I'm Blair. (laughs) And hi. I hope everyone's doing well today. We're so excited about this episode. Blair and I have been talking about it amongst ourselves for weeks. Weeks and weeks and weeks. Weeks and weeks and weeks. We have a really special guest today. Today we are talking about talking to your kids about racism and raising anti-racist kids.
1: Let's do it.
0: I just want my kid to be awesome and aware and have a worldview that encompasses everybody <laughs> that's not too much to ask right no not at all no no no, no i think it'll be fine today we're so thrilled to invite a guest to come and hang out with us her name is Britt hawthorne she's a mother yes teacher get it author okay brit okay Britt. Okay. An anti-bias, anti-racist facilitator. Britt partners with caregivers, educators, and families to raise the next generation of anti-racist children. Yes. That's it. That's the one. Her forthcoming book, Raising Anti-Racist Children, A Practical Parenting Guide, is for families ready to take action that'll bring change at home. Hi, Britt. Hey, Blair. Hi,
2: Molly. It is so good to be on the show. Thank you so much for both an amazing intro there, like really hyping me up, but also just creating space and having me here.
0: We're like your hype person. What is it who's on the stage who's like just making you feel good the whole time, you know? We're like your flavor flames. That's right. (laughs) So we're talking to Britt today about... Listen, as we know, this podcast is for caregivers and parents of kids zero to six. So one thing I wonder if you've heard, Britt, is... Are my kids too young to even perceive race, much less talk to them about, you know, much less growing our kids to be anti-racist, good human beings? Yes, I definitely
2: have heard that. I think in this point, post 2020, I've heard it a lot less Mm -hmm. than before 2020, right? When we had that nationalizing the murder of George Floyd, and then they're just, I feel like anti-racism really became on the mainstream Of a lot of parenting forums and education, we've heard that a lot less because the information is now really being debunked, that children are too young or that there's like a best age. So I think there's a couple different ways in order when we work with children birth through six years old that we are kind of entering into this work. First and foremost, I'm always entering the work about how am I reparenting myself, Mm. right? And my children are going to benefit for the ways that I reparent myself. So sometimes what I'll see is folks like they want to jump in and have that conversation with their child. They haven't even had that conversation with them, with themselves. And then I have to have a conversation with my parenting partners. So whether that's your spouse, your loved one, your husband, your wife, your parenting partners are also your own parents, which can be very difficult, right? It might be your grandparents if you're blessed to still have them living with you. It might be your sisters, your brothers, your friends, anyone who's having a role in helping to raise your child, you're having conversations with them. And then the work really becomes, how do I help my child? And I want to kind of both dig into how do we have really honest conversations with our children that are developmentally appropriate at this age, right. but more importantly, how do I just prepare my house? How do I prepare my home? How do I prepare my space? for my children to pick up anti-racist values. Even if we don't have this conversation every single day or even every week, I've prepared a home space that allows our children to know what is it that we believe and how are we making that happen?
0: Wow. Let's unpack it a little bit. That first thing you talked about, I think, is so really hit home for me, which is kind of surrounding our children with adults or caregivers, people who love them, who are all on the same page about this. And you mentioned one thing that I think could be an obstacle or an opportunity, (laughs) I guess, which is multi-generational. I wouldn't, not necessarily a script, but like, do you have any suggestions about how we can enter into those conversations with people in our family who we care about so much who may be coming at this in a different way so that we can all, you know, be on the same page? Yeah. First, I always recommend
2: folks starting with feelings as a way to connect, mm. right? So if I have a conversation with, I'll use my dad as a big example. My mom passed when I was younger. And so my dad had, you know, was a really big part in raising me and my sister. So I'll use him as a good example. And we do not see eye to eye on a lot of things, right? He's definitely coming from a place of the past was the best, oh. right? He's coming from a place of Well, when we were kids, we did X, Y, and Z. And that's kind of like a golden period. He's coming from a place of the way that, you know, our generation went to work and worked hard, you know, retired from a job, stayed at a job for 30 years. Like that's the way to do it. So we don't see eye to eye on some things being a millennial. And so one thing that I've had to let him know is just being really honest and saying, hey, dad, I want to have a conversation with you. And I'm not for sure where this is going to go. And that makes me very nervous. Just like putting it out there.
0: Yes.
1: That is the way that you said that so effortlessly. And yet the courage and bravery and guts it takes sometimes for some of us to even say that is tremendous.
2: Yeah. And it's, I think, very not only honest, but it's also disarming. For sure. Right. Because like my dad is a doer. Anytime you go to my dad's house, he's moving a million miles a minute, you know, and he is retired and he finds work. It is amazing. I'm like, dad, just sit down. And he's in there like washing the dishes. He's got his file cabinet. And he's like, you know, because he has to print everything off the internet. <laughs> so he's like filing all of these things. He's printed off the internet. And so by me saying that he turns and, you know, and he immediately will say, I'm your dad you don't, there isn't anything you have to be oh, nervous about. Right? right. Oh, that's really great. Right. And then it's like, Oh, dad, I'm so glad that you said that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, all right, here it goes. Because I'm going to bring that back up and be, you know, and I can go back and say, like, see, this is what's making me nervous right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So starting off really with feelings and then making sure you have some clear language in the conversation. And so saying one thing that my partner and I, we've really decided to do is to raise the children as anti-racist. Mm. And then making sure you have common definitions for what that is. Right. And so for my dad as a black man, he's like, but didn't I raise you to be anti-racist? Yeah. Okay. You know, one may say that. So then I will say, you know, I will, dad, that's a great question. Or I'm not sure. How do you think that you raised me to be anti-racist? Because I want to make sure I continue that with our children. So it's still a lot of connecting that's happening when you're having intergenerational conversations, And then from there, you can say, well, yes, I do agree or I disagree, whatever, how that conversation is evolving. But then you get to a point and say, but these are some really clear things that we're doing. Like in our household, we've made clear expectations of what the children will watch and won't watch in our home. So around TV shows, if the show... And this was when our children were, by the way, for folks who are listening, I have two children. They are now much older, 15 and nine. But when they were younger, when they were under the age of six, we had clear expectations of the diversity that needed to be in a show that our children were going to watch. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so if the TV show had all white characters, that was a hard no for us. And that was a hard no, because we knew that our children have natural curiosity. They're learning all of the time and they're drawing conclusions. And some of those conclusions that they're drawing are inaccurate. And having a three, four or five year old, you really can't have a conversation to say, Well, I want you to notice what's happening in this TV show. And I want you to notice how they're centering whiteness. Like, (laughs) That's not a conversation I'm having with a four-year-old. Right, 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 right. Now, that is a conversation I can have with my nine-year-old. And so when my nine-year-old watches Disney or Nickelodeon shows and that happens, I can have that conversation and say, Huh, I'm noticing that there aren't any Latinx people or Asian folks on this TV show. Have you noticed that? I can do that with a nine-year-old. A three, four, and five year old, I just want to make sure that they're seeing what I want them to see. And that's we value diversity. We value representation that is expected in our household. And we'll work to center that.
1: Britt, I got a question for you. Just kind of backtracking a little bit. First of all, I'm now like having second thoughts about having my daughter have watched uh, Cinderella 45,000 times.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping
1: Beauty, Snow White. Great, 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 great. Oh, okay, great. But do you ever get like any like. People being like, as soon as they hear the word racist, especially like in conversations that I've had with people, it's like, as soon as they hear like racism, anti-racist, just the word racist in the context of any kind of conversation, there's this instant like, a butt and the defenses go up. So how do you handle that? How is it that you approach
2: merely the word? Well, first it's like a bandaid and I rip it off. Yes, girl. I rip it off when I'm working with teachers oftentimes like right after lunch, like if I do a one day workshop and they've kind of got to know me a little bit, we've done some icebreakers after lunch is when I then like introduce the word. For instance, this is going to be a word that a lot of times folks have a physical Mm -hmm. reaction to, which is white supremacy. And then it's like, and I just tell folks, I'm like, if you just had a physical reaction to that word, Mm -hmm. I was like, unpack Mm -hmm. it, sit with it. Think about that. Think about like what images that brought up for you. And also think about how much work have you really done to understand that phrase. And for other folks, if you didn't have a physical reaction to that word, I wonder, is it because you've built that muscle around that word and you have some understanding? Or is it because you really just don't actually have any information with the word? right? And so I feel like racist is the same thing. It's like, Oh, I rip it off. I use that word everyday language. My children use that word in their everyday vocabulary too, because words do have power. All words have power. And I want to make sure that the power that I'm giving the word isn't the power of silence, Mm. but it's the power of action. Right. And so what I'm not going to do is avoid the word because then that will only create silence. And that has really (laughs) brought us here to 2022 is that we've had so much silence around this conversation instead of ripping it off and then staying engaged, right? And that's like another thing I always ask folks. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you just got a strong physical reaction, this is now not the time to disengage. This is now not the time to self-soothe or go check your phone or say like, oh, actually, I have to go do this other thing. This is now a really important time for you to stay literally physically stay. And then mentally and emotionally engaged in the conversation.
0: We'll be right back with more from Britt Hawthorne. When you bring your
4: child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork a revolutionary baby monitor is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file
0: You mentioned that your kids are 9 and 15, did you say? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I can see it from here. I have a five-year-old. So I love how you just described that encouraging people and welcoming them to engage with those feelings and that physical reaction that they may have, say, in their gut or their chest or their head or whatever when they hear that word. Is there an age that's, say, too young or to introduce that word in your home? I have a five-year-old, so I want to make sure that sometimes he takes something and runs with it a little too quickly. (laughs) You know what I mean? He's like, oh, I'm going to use that word for everything. (laughs) And so I wonder how and when should we be introducing this word, this idea to them and also kind of weaving in the idea of being not just, you know, the difference between being anti-racist and just not being a racist. So I'm going to give folks two different
2: approaches and people can go with whichever approach feels right for them. Because what I don't want folks to do is to think that there is one right way. And like, it's the only way to do it. It's also knowing where you are at in your journey and also knowing your children and also knowing your support system. So one way that you can introduce it is just you're having all of those conversations with your parenting partners. You're solely having those conversations and your children will benefit from the ways that you're making action without them. And so when you're talking about it, you might do the same thing. Like maybe if you have conversations about sex, and if you're in having conversation, then, you know, you might have a word or phrase that you use with your loved one. Like, In our household, we like, you know, is it time for nap time, like adult nap time, right? So we kind of have like a code word. And so if you're having a conversation, you know, something just happened at the grocery store, you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe what I just witnessed or I was a part of you get in the car, you call your loved one, and you might be spelling some of those words. And that's absolutely fine. Because what you're doing is you are first unpacking and processing with your peers of that situation instead of with your children. Right. And your children are watching you having those courageous conversations. They're not able to understand the content, but what they are saying is, wow, right. Something happened and something's not right with mommy. She's really upset and she called, you know, my other mom or she called daddy and I'm listening to how daddy is responding. So that's one way to approach it. The other way to approach it is having in developmentally appropriate ways, having the conversation where you might want to use words like, oh, and you're not talking about people. So this is not at all where I'm saying that person is racist, right? You're not doing that with young children. What we're talking about are either systems are racist or things are racist. And this is the approach I took with my own children. So we're at Target and my children want to buy something. So I'm like, you know what? We can buy a book. Let's go look for a book. We look through the book and I'm like, oh, hmm." and I'm just modeling, you know how you're like modeling, you talk about everything. You're like dictating everything. I'm flipping the pages and I'm like, oh, people with pale skin, more people with pale skin, more people with fair skin. I don't see anyone with darker skin or tan skin or brown skin. Hmm, we're going to put this book back because that's racist. And we just simply put the book back and say, we'll find another book. So that's something that I'm noted. I'm helping my children to understand that racism exists well beyond the realm of just an interpersonal interaction, which is where I think people really get bogged down. Right. In. Yes. Right. People are like, I don't want to be called a racist. I don't want to call someone else a racist. There's a lot of discomfort when really in anti-racism, the big focus is on systems, right? How do we system blame versus person blame? And that's like when we think about the civil rights movement, all of that work was about systems. How do we help people to have accessibility in voting? How do we help people to have accessibility and access to education, whether that is the textbooks, the curriculum, school buses, actually having a school and et cetera, right? So all of those are systems that we want to help our children to understand. So do not at all get into when you talk to really young children about racism, don't get into you know that person, that president, that you know teacher—they're racist. It doesn't lend to either critical thinking, which is a
1: whole nother right. conversation. But. It's so funny because my husband is white and I am beautifully brown. It's funny because I realize and I notice things with the kids so much more than he does. And like even with like the books and like sometimes we'll just like be, and I have the conversation with him I don't have it with my kids because I you know there's an uncomfortability even with me trying to have the conversation with the kids but like sometimes I'll be reading a book and then I'll finish it and like I'll go to the room and I'll be like there were no people of color in that book and he'll be like what book and I'm like you know whatever book it was and he's like oh it's just I never noticed that. And then I'll bring him into the room. I'll be like, this one and this one and this one. Yes. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, I never noticed that. So it's just like there's this constant, which we didn't have much of that awakening until the world got woke that now I'm just like more and more every day I'm finding and I'm trying to hang on to it because I'm waiting for my kids to get to an appropriate age where I can impart that and tell them and help them recognize Where they're being left out of the conversation.
2: Yes. I love the phrase too. like left out. Like that's a good phrase to use. Even with young children is like, who's left out of this book?
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: And so sometimes it's just building their capacity to notice. Even if you're reading a book with a four year old, you end the book and you're like, who was left out of that book? And they might say, you know, a mommy was left out or they might say a doggy was left out. Like whatever was in their reality, they're going to say is who's left out and say, yeah, and I noticed and you might make something developmentally appropriate of who is left out in the story. Like, oh, you know, a grandma was left out in the story or a person who used a wheelchair was left out Mm. and we close the book and put it on the shelf. That's just building the capacity for our children to notice. Mm. And it's Mm -hmm. also building the capacity for them to say, I can come to you when I'm noticing I'm left out, Mm. right? Because there's going to be a time that they have been also left out and they are going to be wondering, you know, was I left out because I was a girl? You know, that's really big in early elementary, right? They didn't let me play soccer at recess. They didn't let me have the kickball at recess. And you say, I wonder why they left you out. And because you did that pre-work, they can say, you know, I think maybe I was left out as a girl because it was all boys and they only left the girls out. Oh, how can I help? You know, Do you want me to talk to your teacher or do you want maybe some words you can use tomorrow?
1: I had an issue with something that went on at my son's school where, first of all, there's always this issue with people thinking that I'm my kid's nanny, which I still, like, I'm in therapy. I'm like i working through that constantly. Yes to therapy. Yes to therapy. It's less about me and it's more about my kids, right? And there was this issue where I was mistaken for the nanny and I was treated in a certain way and I marched fully into the principal's office. (laughs) I did not have my son with me. I made him like stay by the secretary's desk. But I went in full chest, fully, you know, upset. And she invited me to have a conversation with more teachers and about the prejudices and the biases that we have. And and there was this part of me that was just like, I don't feel like it. And I said it. I was like, I don't want to. It's not my job. Right. It's not something that I feel like I'm raising my three and five-year-old, right? I have enough on my plate. But to help people realize when they're being racist, I just don't feel like that's my job. And I just feel like I don't think that I could, being who I am, have a conversation because I am not as well-versed or sometimes I'm not as kind (laughs) as I could be. But I just wanted to know, like, how do you feel as a woman of color in this space imparting your knowledge upon people like how was that
2: for you yeah no i came into this work let me say by the way i'm so sorry that happened to you Blair thank you and i know i'm not the one who did it and yet i'm sorry that it happened yeah it's okay it happens <laughs> yes yeah. and then it happened and i'm glad that you went to the principal's office and that you said something and that you also realized you know what this isn't my work to do and i think unfortunately a lot of people don't realize that and then what happened is more harm is usually caused in that situation. Right. Because then what happens when you get a group of teachers together and they're not ready to receive what you've said? And then does that put a target on your back? Do they retaliate against your child? Mm. Do they then now disengage and they're like, well, now I'm not even gonna say anything to this kid because you know, no matter what I say, it's not gonna be right. Like, I don't know when people realize when they ask folks of the said community to then turn around and educate what that means, both labor wise, emotional and intellectual, but then also there, it can always be a fallout that happens as well. Right. And I just to acknowledge all of that. And so in anti-racist work, it is like any other kind of education field. There's a set of skills that you have to have in order to navigate both on a facilitation, but also there's a strategic planning that you have to have because anti-racist work is outcome-based work. And that's where a lot of folks get lost in the weeds. They do a set of random actions and say, I'm doing anti this work. And I'm like, but what are you actually hoping to observe? So in our household, for instance, right? Back to like, what does it do for me? I want them to have loving relationships. I want them to know that they can be friends with anyone regardless of their identities. Yes, And that goes beyond racial identity. That's gender identity, sexual orientation, ability, neurodiversity. Like, I want them to know they can be friends with anyone regardless of their social identities. I also want my children to reach their fullest potential. And I acknowledge that there are obstacles in my child's way and in their friend's way. And so I'm working to remove those obstacles so they can reach their fullest potential. So it's like a lot of focus on liberation work, right?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And
2: then a big part of this work becomes healing too. When I'm reaching my fullest potential, I get to show up as my most authentic self, right? I get to show up as my best self. And then I'm not coming into a space and first thinking about You know, oh my gosh, is my hair too big? Or am I professional looking enough? Or how do I sound? You know, am I speaking professional enough? Right? Am I dressed professionally? Are they going to think what this happens to me all the time? Do they think that I'm the assistant? Right? And I remember I had this back and forth in front of one of my teaching, and someone from the district came into my classroom and just interrupted my lesson and was like, "I'm looking for the teacher." And I was like, Oh, I am the teacher. (laughs) And I had at the time, a white assistant, a white woman in her fifties. And she looks at her and she's like, are you the teacher? And my assistant was like, no, that's the teacher. And then she's like, well, I'm looking for the teacher on record for this classroom. And my students are just like, (laughs) you know, a tennis match. Like what is happening? And I'm like, okay, I'm in the middle of a lesson and I want to help you. And then and let me finish this lesson and then we can figure out who is it that you need. Right. So I kind of like finish up the lesson, I get the students off and then I go and I talk to her and I'm like, first of all, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? Why are you in my classroom? And who is it that you need? And long story short, she's like, I'm a curriculum specialist and I need the teacher on record to sign off on this. I was like, that is me. I am the lead teacher in this classroom. And she's like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Mm. So, but a lot of this, right, is about healing work. So that when I have those experiences, I can know, you know what? It's not me. It's not because I look young. It's not because I am black. It is not because I am not dressed a certain way. Actually, it is the other person. It is their own prejudice that are holding them back from being able to be in loving relationships with people. But if we're not doing this kind of work, We risk it by internalizing all of that, right? And so every day when I get up in the morning, it's like, how can I just be better to prove myself instead of like, no, I am already valuable. I have dignity. I have worth. And I'm going to show up as my full authentic self into the classroom and know that I have a lot to give. So, you know, I do anti-racist work for all of those reasons, both in my home, but also professionally, which you can imagine is very exhausting work because you're constantly dealing with people who haven't yet healed healed yes mm-hmm. right who haven't yet started to think about well what prejudice have i picked up then i need to put down
1: and it's not a reflection on them as who they are it's just how they grew up how we all grew up all the things that were yes inflicted or uninflicted upon us that we just like you know listen we're all undoing it we're all undoing it
2: Oh, I am reparenting myself every single day. And that's actually how I came into this work hmm. is because I started to really reckon with the prejudice that I've picked up and I still have them. And I will always have them because fun fact, that's how bias works, right? We are <laughs> constantly learning information. And just as our young children will draw inaccurate conclusions, like they might say something, you know, oh, why is their skin so dark? Maybe they drink too much chocolate milk. hmm Right. That's, you can see the wheels are turning and they're trying to figure out how is it that people have, you know, darker skin colors. And you know what? We like to think that we are somehow so far away from toddlers, but we're really not. Our minds are also picking up information and we're also drawing those conclusions. And even as
0: adults, we don't always draw them accurately. What would you say to people who are hearing this and think to themselves, oh, I'm so worried about doing it wrong. Hmm. Right. To our white listeners or really any listeners who say, but I want to <laughs> me and Blair always talk about, oh, I broke my kid. I broke him like by saying <laughs> broke, something. Weird. Oh, <laughs> he's oh, he's broken, broken now. So good. I broke can't him. take him back. Got to live with them forever and deal with it. That's it. That's it. Welcome to therapy. The rest of your life, kid. I was going to say, hey, we went to therapy yesterday. (laughs) That's how I feel. I'm like, I did it. I know I did it. I did it. I did it. (laughs) It was me. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all in this parenting sphere, in this caregiver sphere, and we're trying to do the best by our kids. And it might feel a little scary to somebody listening right now. Do you have an idea of a way they can approach it where they can go into it with, well, first of all, what you said about going into the classrooms that you do, already knowing and having the confidence that like, I am supposed to be here. I'm a professional. I have my worth and my dignity. I'm a bad, you know what? And I can get in there and, you know, do my thing. And what can we say to our parent listeners who are saying, oh gosh, I'm so worried about doing the wrong thing. For sure. You know,
2: what I hear you naming really is perfectionism. Mm. Yes. Yes. Right. And perfectionism exists both in this work, but it just exists in our world. We operate in a society that expects perfection 110% of the time. And so a dear friend of mine, Katie, tells this story. Oh, yeah, by the way, y'all. I wrote a book and I have a lot of information in this book.
1: Oh, we're going to get it. We're going to get it.
0: Yes.
2: I'm like, (laughs) oh, yeah. So Katie tells this story in the book of like starting to think about how is it that I learned perfectionism when I didn't actually even know that word until my adult life. And Katie tells the story about very vividly remembering one time washing dishes and they broke a dish and being so afraid to tell their parents that they broke the dish. So they went out into their dad's garage and try to fix it and put it back.
0: Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah,
2: buddy. And I just think about that is perfectionism. When we tell our children through the ways that we might Mm overcorrect them, Mm -hmm. right. The ways that it's like every moment, it needs to be a learning moment. And I see that happening a lot in the parenting sphere. It's like, how do we make every moment a teachable moment or how do I make sure I have the right scripted words? Like scripted language, I feel like has really come to the forefront. I've been in the parenting you know, world now almost 16 years. And that is a pretty new phenomenon. We didn't have a real big focus on scripted language a decade ago. right? No. And so all of that is fueling and feeding this, how do I be perfect? How do I not make a mistake?
1: Yes. Ooh.
2: So notice that. Just start thinking first and foremost of how is it that I started to learn perfectionism and where do I expect it and why? Now, if you're writing a professional email and you want to make sure you know there are no grammatical issues, that's one thing. But with our children, we have to be able to say mistakes belong here too, right? We have to be able to say we make mistakes. And that's really important. We have to be able to know when we go back to our child and say, hey, we had that conversation earlier today and I didn't like where it landed. I didn't like how it ended. I didn't like where it went. Can we do a do-over?
0: That's so powerful to be able to have the confidence to do that and to know that, to acknowledge that you too make mistakes in front of your kid is so, that's really powerful, yeah.
2: All the time. And even when they're three, even when they're four, going back at bedtime, sitting on the bed and saying, hey, I didn't like how that felt in my body. When I said X, Y, or Z, can I say something different this time? You know, and just like, like asking that permission and then rephrasing however that you want to say it. So definitely think it's an anti-racist work. I think that's a big thing. People want to get it right. They want to be perfect. They don't want to make the, a mistake. And I am here to tell you, you're going to make mistakes. Plural. <laughs> you're going to get it wrong. When you get it wrong, it's an opportunity for you to say, well, it's a growth moment. I clearly have something to learn here. Let me welcome this feedback and just let truth take up space. And that's something I've had to tell with my children, right? I'm like, you know what, Kobe? I need you to respect my words. I have already told you how many banana muffins. How many? You know, and he's like, two. That is right because everyone in the house is supposed to have a banana muffin. I need you to listen to my words. And he might start to get big. He might start to puff out his chest. And I will just simply say, you know what? I'm going to let that truth take up space. And you can come back and let me know if there's something you need from me. That needs to be on a shirt.
1: Let the truth take up space.
2: Yes. It's not this like we're going back and forth. It is truth is taking up space in anti-racist work. When someone tells you, hey, mm-hmm. what you just said was rooted in racism, what you just did was othering. What you are practicing right now is exclusionary. And it might sting, but it's like, you know what? Let me just let <sighs> the truth take up. Yeah. Yeah. Truth take up space mm-hmm. in my body and say, I have something to learn in this moment. And also, if I can tell folks, stop owning it so much. Okay. Right? Like when I've said something that's rooted in ableism, or I've said something and it's rooted in homophobia, and then someone gives me the gift of truth. And then I'm like, gosh, instead of me owning it and being like, I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe I said that. I'm going to just delete all my social media accounts. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I'm just fall off the face of the earth now. Instead of that, it's like going back to, gosh, I wonder where I pick that up. Mm, right. 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 I wonder how I learned that and let me put it back down. And then let me work so that my children don't also pick it up. Because fun fact, if it's already in me and I've already picked it up, guess who else probably
0: already learned it too? The person who's watching you 24 hours a day. (laughs) For seven. (laughs) (laughs) For real. Yes. And it's like, oh,
2: so, you know, you just turn to the little one and, and you're like, all right, I am going to, you know, let me think of three things that I need to do right now to help them not yes. pick that up
0: right great i wrote down so many notes during this interview the piece of paper <laughs> that i wrote it on looks like when in the movies when <laughs> they put somebody like in a trance and then they give them a notebook and it's like <gasps> scribble 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 and it's like in an ancient dialect or something because they went back into their dna or what have you I- it is <laughs> i have so many wonderful things brit thank you i wish we could just like sit here mm, for the next week <laughs> Hope you're not busy. Oh,
2: thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you all so much for making this space and normalizing this conversation. Yeah. For caregivers with young children of like, what does this look like? What does it sound like? You know, this is really important work. And I believe every child deserves the opportunity to practice anti racism, to see it happening. Yes. Yeah. Because it allows our children to reach their fullest potential.
0: Yes. Right? And I love the idea of for our specific age group, just surrounding them with the right tools. I love that. I love the idea of really looking at the books you're providing them with, looking at the words that you and their fellow caregivers are using and the worlds that you're putting them in. And that can be the you're planting the seeds you know, until they're old enough to be able to have these sort of more advanced conversations with us. But we're planting the seeds of having them have that perspective on the world. And I so appreciate that idea of just changing their surroundings will change their world, you know, their books, where they go to play or whatever. It's we're planting those seeds now. I love that.
1: It's also just nice to know that there's someone in this world who is making it their forthright duty to make this world a better place. And you're studying it and you're writing books and you're giving lectures and you're teaching other people and this is your life's work. And I think that that is just so admirable. And it helps someone like me who often feels like my perfectionism wants to take over or that my faults want to shut me up forever and make me feel like I'm ruining.
3: <laughs> I broke him. I broke them. I wrote my kids.
1: There's just like such a a swell of hope to have a conversation with you, Britt, to know that this is the work that you're doing and bringing it to us. And we are super grateful.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate both of y'all. And I am so grateful for y'all.
0: Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Hey
4: there. I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence You are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
3: I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together, we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs)
0: Oh, what a great interview subject. Brit, what a gift. I have, like I said, so many takeaways scrawled onto a notebook like somebody in some kind of a psychic fugue. (laughs) (laughs) But my biggest takeaway has to be that for our kids between the ages of zero to six, do not feel like you have to delve into the intricacies of... (laughs) Slavery or uh, that kind of thing. Right now we are surrounding them and building up their foundation with the tools that allow them to have, you know, this view on the world. Wasn't that so eye opening, Blair, about truly looking critically at the TV shows they watch, the books they read? Yes. And not necessarily that you have to, like, rip them out of their hands and throw them in the fire and be like, racist. (laughs) Enough of (laughs) it! White supremacy out of my household (laughs) Yes But actually to talk to them about it. Like she says she goes to Target and looks at a book and says, hmm, I'm not sure if there's the best book for us. It doesn't seem to have, you know, who's being left out. I love that. Yeah. When she said like naming
1: it when they name it for themselves out of their curiosity, and then you name it for yourself, whatever it is. You know, oh, if your kid's like, oh, this book doesn't have any mommies or this book, you know, whatever appeals to their curiosity. And then, you know, I would say, well, this book doesn't have many brown people. And then how does that make you feel? And then the one thing that she said that I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, wah-bam, there it is, is let the truth take space and leave it alone. Let it live there. Let it live there. Because I think that that's like such a thing, even just for like being a mother of toddlers. Is that so much of the time, like she said, we're on this like train of like correcting, perfecting and making it right when really it's just what it is. And it's the truth of the moment. And if we just let it be there without naming it, objectifying it, simplifying it, making it something and just letting it be what it is.
0: Yes. Gosh almighty. Can you even imagine the pressure that is alleviated off of all parties involved? Yep. To not feel like it has to be, first of all, to not feel like you have to be perfect. Exactly. I mean, how great was that too, saying her reminder to us that we don't always have to be perfect in the moment. We don't always have to say the perfect thing or do the right thing when we're teaching you know, our children how to see the world in an anti-racist way. But we can go back, and, like she said, sit on the edge of the bed and say, I didn't like the way my explanation felt in my body. Yes. Would it be all right if I took that again? Oh, gosh. Blair, you saw my eyes well up with tears a couple times during that because so much of it hit me as relief to be able to say, don't expect perfectionism from your kid or you. We're all just being curious and learning and growing. Learning, We are reparenting ourselves. She said reparent and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Same. Just same, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm crying.
1: It's cathartic. It's just that thing. And it's just a beautiful, the thing that I'm so grateful for, for this podcast is to have these opportunities when this, to have these conversations and just to be reminded fully that I'm human, right? And that, that there is an answer to it. There is an answer to my woes. There is an answer to my worries. There is an answer to all the things that
0: I deal with. And that people are out there who are trying to help me, which is a beautiful thing as we're trying to help. And just like she said about the homes we want to create, I hope that with this podcast, with people listening, I hope you know that mistakes belong here too. Absolutely. None of us are perfect. We don't expect perfectionism from our kids. We shouldn't expect it from ourselves. We're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to learn from them. So good on you for being here with us. We really appreciate you. Absolutely. Hey,
1: get a chance get a sec drop a rating on spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts join us
0: on our what fresh Hell facebook page we're gonna put the information in our show notes for brit's book that comes out later this year and so everybody go out and buy it so we can all make the world a better place <laughs> yes and thank you brit and thank you to you all thank you see you next time take it easy